Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Harvesting Happiness. Today, you will learn about blooming where you are rooted, what neuroscience can teach us about harnessing passion and productivity. Let's get to it with my first guest, Lisa Feldman Barrett, PhD. Dr. Feldman Barrett has received numerous scientific awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship in Neuroscience and an NIH Director's Pioneer Award. She is a University Distinguished Professor at Northeastern University with appointments at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. Her most recent book is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. She is also the author of the best-selling book, How Emotions Are Made. Lisa, thanks for joining us on the show. I'm really excited to talk with you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, we love to know what's under our human hood here. <laughs> We're curious minds. Talk a little bit about how brains have evolved in humans. Well, that three pound blob of meat between your ears looks like it's pretty ordinary, but it's actually one of the most complex organs that the complex things that that evolution has ever produced. And the really interesting thing to me was that you know, if you go back several hundred million years ago, the earth was ruled by creatures that didn't have brains. I mean, I, I, I'm resisting the urge to make a comment about the current political situation <laughs> and how it could feel like the earth is still ruled by creatures without brains. But, you know, 550 million years ago, you know, creatures really didn't have brains and they didn't need brains um, because they were, the organisms were pretty simple. And, the scientists guess now, their best guess is that brains evolved under the selection pressure of hunting, that when animals actually started to deliberately hunt each other, and where the most important question in existence became, is that blob up ahead good to eat, or is it going to eat me? Uh, this introduced a whole set, a whole cascade of problems that uh, that creatures had to solve. And one thing led to another, as I discuss in the book, and and um, brains evolved. And the really interesting thing to me, anyways, is that um, you know, if you ask most people, like, what's your brain's most important job? Most people will tell you, well, it's to think, it's to be rational, it's to be reasonable. That's, that's the most important thing that our brain does, and it's the most evolved thing that our brain does. But in fact, your brain's most important job is to regulate the systems of your body. 
as mm. animals got bigger and bodies got bigger, they needed brains um, to control all those systems in in your body. So right now, as we're talking to one another and as your listeners are listening, each one of us has a, a drama going on inside our own bodies that we're largely unaware of for the most part. And your brain's job is to be the conductor, uh, you know, the orchestra conductor of that, of that, of that symphony or of that drama. Well, I, I want to ask you a question about that, because the more we, the more stress we have, the more overloaded our brains become, either with information or with stress, it's really hard for us to orchestrate what is going on, right? Well, yes and no. It certainly feels that way. But I guess what I would say to answer your question is to back up and say, what does it mean to say that a brain regulates your body? And, you know, your brain didn't evolve to think or feel or see. It evolved to regulate your body. And you think and feel and see in the service of regulating your body. That's not how it seems to us, but that's actually what's happening under the hood. And so what is stress from this perspective? Stress is where your brain is predicting, uh, it's making a guess that in the next moment, your body's going to need a major metabolic out outlay, either because you're going to move in some significant way, or you're going to learn something new, which are the two things that are very expensive for your brain to do, learning something new and moving in some significant way. And what you're going to do is essentially use up a bunch of resources. And so the way that I describe this, it has a very technical name called allostasis. But the way I describe it is just think about your brain as budgeting for your body. Your brain is running a body budget and it's not budgeting money. It's budgeting salt and glucose and water and oxygen and all of the nutrients that you need to stay alive and well. And so what your brain is doing is constantly managing the deposits and the withdrawals. So when you go exercise, you go for a hike or you go for a run, you're making a withdrawal. When you eat or sleep or get a hug from a friend, you're making a deposit. Now, what's stress? Stress is where your brain is preparing for a major withdrawal. That's not necessarily bad. When you wake up in the morning, your brain is preparing for a major withdrawal because you're about to get out of bed. When you right before you're you're ready to exercise, go for a run or or work out at the gym, your brain is preparing for a major withdrawal. The issue is um, that you know you have to replenish. You have to after you make a withdrawal, you need to make a deposit. You um, and sometimes we make withdrawals you know, as a way of making an investment in the future, right? And that's what exercise is, for example, or learning something new. The problem comes when your brain prepares you for a major withdrawal and that withdrawal never comes. So for example, cortisol, which a lot of people think of as a stress hormone, is really not a stress hormone. Its job is to get glucose into your bloodstream really fast because your brain is expecting that you're going to need it. And if you don't need it, you feel that as stress, essentially. Or when you make many, many deposits, many, many withdrawals, uh, and then you don't replenish with deposits, like say you don't get enough sleep, or you don't eat healthfully, or, you know, so if you have too many withdrawals, or, you know, um, that you don't replenish uh, with deposits, or if you 
keep preparing for withdrawals that never come, each of those times, you know, you're sort of paying a little metabolic tax and that adds up over time. You know, it's a slow drift, but it adds up over time, sort of like boring a hole, you know, through a, a pipe with, with a drip of water. And eventually you feel really crappy. And um, if that goes on for too long, you can actually get sick. I want to ask you about the deposits. So you mentioned about like having sleep, good nutrition, exercise is another one. I think we as humans often overlook nourishing our brains. We think, okay, um, the brain is somehow a separate system from the other parts of ourselves. But there are sound things that we can do to maintain brain health and optimal brain performance. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, brain health is is crucial really to to overall health. Uh, I mean, I think that um, it's not just your memory that you have to worry about when your brain starts to fail you. Um, you as brains age, um, their ability to regulate our bodies also um, diminishes, and that you know sets us up for a set of uh, making us more vulnerable to a set of illnesses. So brain health is, is crucially important. It's, as you say, it's, it's usually overlooked, but it's actually, um, one of the most important things that you can do for yourself. And the earlier in your life, you realize that, uh, the better off you'll be in the long run. What are some things that we can do on a daily basis besides those basic self-care tips that, that we've just spoken of, that would contribute towards healthy brain functioning? Yeah, so um, I'm happy to talk about additional ones, but I do want to point out that sleep, getting enough sleep yeah. <laughs> is actually, you know, the science is telling us that that's a crucial, crucial, crucial piece of this equation. So if if you only had the opportunity to do one thing that you would change, it would be to get enough sleep. And, you know, a lot of the things that we can do are obvious in, in the sense that um, we can, you know, keep well hydrated and, you know, eat healthfully and exercise on a regular basis. These are all really important things for, for brain health. They're, they're things that not everybody has the luxury to do, unfortunately. Not everybody has control over their lives to that extent, but Everybody has control over something. And so, you know, these are some things that you can do. You can also, there are some other things that you can do too. So for example, your brain is a kind of a use it or lose it organ. And so that's why exercise is so beneficial to brain health, to your memory, um, to your brain's ability to control your body easily with very little tax that you will pay, metabolically speaking. Um, and so, for example, continuing to, in a sense, continuing to stress yourself, but in a good in a good way and in a controlled way. So, for example, learning a new skill like um, learning to paint or learning um, to play tennis or learning to speak a different language or learning um, to uh, be a potter or something like that. You know, these the kinds of skills that require um, significant investments over a longer term where it can actually be hard, hard enough that like exercise, you might feel a little crappy in the moment because you're making a major metabolic outlay, 
And as long as you replenish that major metabolic outlay, your brain will be actually much more, will be healthier and much more flexible. And that's really what you want. So anything that makes you in the moment feel a little yucky, as long (laughs) as you, as long as you replenish what you've spent, that's something that can be, you know, really important for brain health. Another thing that's important for brain health, surprisingly, is um, actually being socially connected to people. So we did not um, evolve as a species to be alone. Um, we don't manage our body budgets on our own. We make, you know, figuratively speaking, um, deposits and withdrawals into each other's um, body budgets. So we are, to some extent, we are the caretakers of each other's nervous systems as much as we are the caretakers of our own. And so, um, being around people who you have supportive relationships with turns out to be extremely good for your health, both your physical health and that translates to your brain health. Well, and we know it works for mental health. We know it works for physical health. So it, it sort of, you know, makes sense that you're saying that for our brain health as well, we're going to need to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett to learn more about her and her work and her newest book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Please visit lisafeldmanbarrett.com and on Twitter at L Feldman Barrett. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Before we head out to the break, I want to mention that gathering friends and family for Thanksgiving might be a little challenging this year, but it doesn't mean that we can't find new creative ways to be close. This year, I won't have the luxury of being able to celebrate with most of my family. I know it's super disappointing, but I've still found a great way to feel rooted and connected to the ones I love. This year, I'm gifting the gift of storytelling and memory making to my tribe. Today's sponsor, StoryWorth, offers a great way to stay in touch with family and helps bridge geographic distance by providing lively and inspiring discussion topics. Now more than ever, we need to find creative and secure ways to be connected when we can't always be near our loved ones. StoryWorth makes gift-giving hassle-free from the comfort and security of your home. StoryWorth is one of the easiest and most creative ways to strengthen bonds with family, preserve memories, take a deep dive into family history, and create a precious keepsake. Purchase a subscription for someone you love, and each week StoryWorth will email a meaningful question designed to elicit entertaining, surprising, and sometimes moving responses. For example, has your life turned out differently than you imagined it would? After one year, StoryWorth will compile all stories, including photos, into a beautiful printed book that will be a treasure for generations to come that will ship for free. Give your loved ones the gift of spending time together wherever you live with StoryWorth. Get started right away with no shipping required by going to StoryWorth.com slash HH. You'll get $10 off your first purchase. That's StoryWorth.com slash HH for $10 off. Now here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we 
are back. I'm talking with my guest, Lisa Feldman Barrett, PhD, about blooming where we are rooted, what neuroscience can teach us about harnessing passion and productivity. I want to just uh, shift the conversation a little bit to talk about the title of your book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. How did you come up with the title? Well, a number of years ago, I had an idea to write a book very much like this. I was going to call it Six Facts About the Brain based on, it was a riff off of a book that I had read called um, The Six Drinks That Changed the World, which is actually a fantastic book. It's a book about coffee and tea and liquor and wine and how these drinks, you know, each at certain eras in history played a role in um, charting actually uh, human, the, the history of and direction of human civilization. So I thought, okay, I'll, and then, but then um, as I was working on the the outline of the book, I was very fortunate to receive uh, an NIH Director's Pioneer Award, um, which, you know, basically required me to drop everything that I was doing and, um, and attend to my lab full, like 100% of the time. Um, and so fast forward a decade, and um, I was having lunch with um, the acquisition editor who purchased How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. She had acquired the manuscript for Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, my, my publishing house. And um, she, she had left at that point, and she was telling me about a book uh, that was recent, that she was editing for uh, Carlos Rivelli, the physicist. Uh, called uh, Second Brief Lessons in Physics. And I said, oh, that's so interesting that you tell me that because I, you know, and I started to tell her about this book that I had had this idea to write, uh, you know, basically a decade ago um, and uh, a, a little book of essays. And um, I, I just never really got back to it. And she said, well, I, I think that would be a fantastic book. And I was telling her all about, you know, what the various lessons that I would, you know, um, would include. And she said, Oh, that's, that's a really great idea. So I happened to be in New York when, you know, and I was meeting with her, um, for a meal. And so I just walked across the street to my agent's office and said, Hey, what do you think about this? And he was like, I love that idea. Um, and as I was working on the book, I realized that I really, you know, the first lesson is, is a lesson about, um, brain evolution, but it, it it's a lesson that's really focused on um, explaining that you don't really have a lizard brain, you know, this idea that you have a, an inner reptile, you know, a lizard brain that is um, responsible for your urges and, um, and uh, that, you know, your neocortex basically controls this lizard brain. So the idea is that your big, your big, uh, beautiful uh, cerebral cortex the, the home of your rationality, you know, controls your inner beast, essentially. This is a whole thing is basically a myth, although it's a very, very popular myth. And uh, I decided, though, that it would be really, really interesting to actually tell a little bit, give a little bit more history about the evolution of the brain, because I was really, really struck by this question of like, why do we even have brains in the first place? Like, what is a brain good for? Why did it evolve in the first place? And so that became the half lesson. Um, so there's a, the half lesson is a little story, a partial story really about the, um, the dawn of brains on earth. And that leads into, uh, the rest of the lessons, um, in the book. And each essay is, you know, each, it's like a tasting menu essentially of, um, topics where, you know, you get a little bit of neuroscience that's very, very, very digested, 
um, for it's really written. The essays are written for people who don't normally think of themselves as being interested in popular science. And it introduces some um, some really cool little tidbits um, that you can, you know, entertain your friends with or your family. Um, and then, it also, <laughs> okay. <laughs> also, it it really, you know, it 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 works. I I will say, um, uh, you know, part of the inspiration was, you know, dinner party after dinner party. My we would come home, and my husband would say, you know, you had the you had the people at the table in the palm of your hands when you were talking about, you know, this part of the brain. <laughs> Who can do that? But the interesting thing I think is that each essay really invites you to take this little nugget about the brain and to think about what it means for human nature. You know, think about what it means for the kind of human that you are or that you want to be. Yeah. I like that about, you know, really taking the perspective that our brains help us become who we are or who we're not. And your little snippy comment at the beginning of our conversation about the the politicians, I mean, made me laugh because it's like, you know, you do think, you know, are, are, are we becoming a mindless society? And I don't think yeah. that's the case. I mean, we know so much more about the brain than we did even 20 years ago. Yeah. And in fact, I think one of the really coolest things, and this is something that I, uh, about brains, and it is something that I talk about in one of the lessons is that, you know, we have this kind of basic brain plan that we share with each other, all humans, and actually all mammals have the same brain plan and maybe even all vertebrates, that is all animals with backbones. So we have this basic brain plan for humans, but we have very, very, very different kinds of minds that evolve out of this brain plan. And so how does that work? Like, how is it? There is no real human nature. There are human natures. There are many, many, many different kinds of human minds. And how do you get all of these different kinds of human minds out of a single basic um, plan? You know, um, that's a really, really interesting question. And it also invites us to think about variation in, in, in humans. And I think, you know, to me, the, one of the things that strikes me the most is that humans love variation in food, in clothes, in weather, in cars, but not so much in each other. You know, we have a really hard time with people who are really different from us. And yeah. of course, I'm speaking really generally here. You know, you're, you know, there are probably individual listeners who are thinking, not me. I have no problem with people who are different than me. I'm making a sweeping generalization, but I think it's a generalization that holds pretty well. Yeah. Is that because it makes us feel safe? Like when we feel like we can recognize something of ourselves in the other. And there is a sense of familiarity, right? That there isn't too much of a difference that we feel like we feel okay. We feel safe. We feel like we're in a predictable environment. Is that where it comes from? Exactly. I mean, you just hit the nail on the head, which is we're in a predictable environment. Yeah. 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 And it turns out, you know, what does that mean under the hood, a predictable environment? And what it means, again, it comes back to body budgeting. What are the things that are really, really expensive for a brain to do? Move your body and learn something new. So if you're with people who are unlike you and are fundamentally unpredictable to you, 
that is a costly thing to do, it, to interact with them. Now, sometimes we crave novelty. We seek it out. We travel to places that we've never been before. We, it's sort of like planning to exercise. You know it's something you're going to do. You're looking forward to that sort of increase in arousal that comes with you know excitement, learning something new. Um, and as long as you replenish, you're okay. But when you're dealing with uncertainty, especially coming from other humans, it's really, really hard on you. And it's hard on your nervous system. It's just, it's not because we're snowflakes or because we're lazy. It's just how <laughs> we're built. We're humans. Yeah. We have a human nervous system and that's how human nervous systems work. So it's really challenging, actually. It's really rewarding, but it, it, it's also really challenging. It's, 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 it's expensive, metabolically speaking. And, you know, people now don't, you know, people are struggling with their body budgets. I would say if I had to engineer a cultural context that would bankrupt a body budget or at least push it to the brink of bankruptcy, it wouldn't look very different from the one that we currently are living in. I was thinking as you were speaking, I was thinking the same thing. It's like it does put us into a bit of a, a crisis or the potential for crisis. Um, we're almost out of time. And I want to ask you something about and I don't even know if the terminology that I'm about to share is correct or makes sense, but there are some amazing individuals in history and who are alive today who are like right left brain synthesizers, right? They're able to really activate both sides of their brain or they have in, in history. And I'm thinking of Leonardo da Vinci as one example, you know, that he had the science down and the art down. And what is it about characters like him that are so special? You know, I don't know that he is that special. And, and here's why. I think that, first of all, we all use both sides of our brain all the time. That It's the idea that people are more left-brained or more right-brained is not really held up well under uh, scientific scrutiny. We all use all of our brain all of the time. It doesn't may not feel that way. <laughs> so we're <laughs> myth us, busting. We should probably interject yeah. that we are myth busting. <laughs> yeah, but I will say that that one thing that makes Leonardo unique or people like him unique is that he foraged for information. He was an explorer. Now, when we say he was an explorer, I don't necessarily mean he explored, you know, outer space or that he explored, you know, um, unseen parts of the world. He was exploring. Um, knowledge and topics that um, that normally people don't explore at the same time. So, um, you know, people typically, because of the way societies are organized, you know, if you're kind of mathy, then you go in a math direction. If you're kind of artsy, you go in an arts direction. To some extent, we're constantly curating our own environments or environments are curated for us that limit what we learn, they limit what we're exposed to. And, um, you know, we're, everything that we experience becomes fodder for our brains to use in the future to, to construct those experiences. So I guess what I would say about Leonardo and, and other people who are notable in history in that way is that they foraged for information really outside the tr typical boundaries that, that society set for them. So he was someone who 
he was interested in science, but he was also interested in art. And he was also interested in philosophy and he was interested in engineering. And so he was really, you know, he treated the boundaries between disciplines with the disdain that those boundaries deserve, is what I would say. Um, and he didn't allow himself to be constrained by the expectations that he would forage only for knowledge in only one domain. And I think that the reason why I say I don't think he's unusual, or I think he's not special is I think if we, he's special in the sense that he cultivated for himself those opportunities. But I think that if we, if we constructed our cultural, you know, landscape in a way that allowed people to forage from different um, domains to learn and make connections between things that we think of as somewhat different, people would do it. So, you know, my husband is a musician, but he's also a computer scientist. And actually, there's a whole legion of engineers who are actually also musicians. And there are, you know, I have people who, in my lab, who um, are really, really interested in human sciences, like public health, but they're also really interested in neuroscience. Um, and, uh, you know, in my book, for example, um, actually in both books, uh, there's something there for philosophers, there's something there for, for people who are interested in big questions about human nature, philosophy, or for history, or neuroscience, or psychology. So I think that more of us could be more like uh, da Vinci in the sense that, you know, we could broaden our horizons and, and really benefit from, from doing so. Wow. Will you come back again? Because I feel like we've only like scratched the surface of this conversation. I, I had written down some other questions, but we don't have time. So if you'll come back again, we could take a deeper dive. I'd be delighted. It would, it's such a pleasure to, to talk with you. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. The book we're speaking of today is Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. My guest has been Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. To learn more about Dr. Feldman Barrett and her work, please visit lisafeldmanbarrett.com and on Twitter at L Feldman Barrett. Once again, the book, I'm going to give it a shout out because you can educate yourself for some fabulous dinner conversation. Seven and a half lessons about the brain. Lisa, thanks for joining me. And I look forward to you coming back again. I think it will be fantastic. I'm looking forward to it too. Thank you so much. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. We're talking about what neuroscience can teach us about harnessing passion and productivity. We're talking about what it takes to bloom right where we are rooted. My next guest is Carson Tate. She works with organizations of all sizes around the world to help them improve the engagement of their employees, the productivity of their workforces, and the efficacy of their leadership. She holds a BA in psychology from Washington and Lee University as well as a master's in organization development. She is the author of Own It, Love It, Make It Work, How to Make Any Job Your Dream Job. And I love this title. Carson, thanks for joining me on the show today. 
<laughs> Thank you so much, Lisa. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, I appreciate anybody that can get up and speak about the mandatory requirements in the new world of work, which work inversely, right? It's not what we think it is. It's it's not. So it's a new way of working. So first, work is not a place you go. Work is something you do. And right now, in this time of rapid change, everything we know about work was upended like within a week. And so in this time of rapid change, you have a tremendous opportunity to reimagine how you work and why you work because everything's in flux. Yeah. Everything. I mean, suddenly moms and dads have become teachers. Yes. Students have become helpers around the house. Right. right. Older siblings have become more jumping in, taking care of some of the nannying. I mean, the world got a little crazy, but the, but the crazy, I think can, can yield something really positive. I think it's making us a more human based world of work. Absolutely. And the intersection of work and life. Um, and I, I don't know about you, Lisa, but before the pandemic, I never had the opportunity to enjoy lunch with my husband and my nine-year-old. And now we do, which yeah. is a huge gift. And I haven't been planes, trains, and automobiles and exhausted, but I've still been connecting and teaching virtually. Yeah. I'm experiencing the same thing here. I mean, part of what I do, of course, is this radio world, and that hasn't changed a lick. In fact, it's just gotten busier. And in the throes of the pandemic, every guest was so happy just to come on and hang out. You know, usually we'd be chasing guests like we need half an hour for you. Come on, come on. You you, want to do it. But people were really wanting to just connect and gave the best of themselves you know, in that period of time that we'd spend together. But the other side of my old world of work was that high touch where I'd be in the car on a plane or going to clients and I would be exhausted Mm -hmm. and feel as though, yes, I'd be satisfied with the work I was doing because I'm passionate as, as are you. Yes. But there was a personal price. Absolutely. There definitely was. And what I'm seeing with our clients, Lisa, and maybe you're seeing this as well, is that there's been a really radical approach to reimagining work. So getting really clear on what drives revenue, what supports the clients, what supports creativity and innovation, and then having the courage to say, you know, these reports or this meeting doesn't serve us. It isn't serving us in this way that's helping us achieve our goals. And so as we start to get clear and courageous and let go of what I call the busy work, then we've got more capacity to do the work that really matters. And I think ignites our spirit and helps us, you know, our hearts sing. What I hear you say, which is really striking a chord with me, is that the motivation for why we work needs to change, that it's not about the paycheck. Yes, we all need money. Let's just like not be Pollyanna about it. Yes, money is important. It it, it affords comfort, safety and opportunity. Let's just get that off the table. But But the motivator, the primary thing that drives us to show up is what I think you're really trying to uncover with your book. 
Absolutely. It's that deeper source of engagement, fulfillment, and joy in your work. So it's significance beyond a paycheck. It's finding that joy through the expression and utilization of your strengths, those signature strengths that you bring to the table in your experiences. It's the relationships that you cultivate and how in those relationships you connect in a meaningful way and serve. It's the opportunity to grow and develop and to have that conversation with yourself around what is the meaning in my work. And the cool thing I think about meaning is it's defined by you. So I can't tell you, Lisa, what the meaning is in your work. You can define that, which I believe is incredibly powerful. Yeah. Well, I think that that is another upside of what's uh, gone on is that we get to determine our values um, particularly when it comes to how we're responding even to the COVID crisis, right? That we want to operate in a way that aligns with our values, with our beliefs, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. our morals. And that translates into the office. It has to. It has to. So I believe, Lisa, gone are the days where you check yourself at the office door, who you are, your experiences, your authentic self in version of so that you can be some version of what you think a professional or fill in the blank type professional is. That's gone. Yeah, it's absolutely gone. And I think the most important shift here is, as you've talked about this intersection of who we are and our personal values back into our work, which speaks to the necessity to get away from work life balance and move towards work life integration. Absolutely. Absolutely. Balance is fundamentally flawed. So it always you I mean, I think it is. And highly overrated. And highly overrated. I mean, you know, we can look at nature and, you know, the earth is only in balance like two days a year, which is around the equinoxes. So it's just not the way it works. Overrated and it creates this really challenging I think, artificial goal that we strive for that doesn't work. Absolutely not. So how do you integrate your work so that it supports and enables the full expression of your life? It fits seamlessly within it. Yes. And I cut you off and I'm sorry about that. I got so excited about what you said because it also taps into like getting rid of perfectionism like killing that perfectionist inside of us because it really is an unattainable goal anyway. Completely. Oh, and I so have that perfectionist. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, it is a constant struggle for me, Lisa. And I, it has a close cousin, you know, that comparison, yeah. which is a very dangerous duo. And when we think about creating a life that really is a full expression of who we are, where we are joyful and happy and connected and engaged, comparing ourselves to someone else or another version of a life doesn't work. Yeah. Well, and when you look at a lot of the research about happiness and sustainable well-being, um, there is this notion of social comparison of trying to keep up with the Joneses or all have what she's having as actually being happiness killing. 
Oh, completely. Absolutely. Spirit killing. <laughs> I think it's spirit killing. Yeah. Absolutely. And so this is where we have such a powerful opportunity. I think this is one of the silver linings of the world today in the pandemic is we were all asked to go home and sit with our own self. And in that, it was difficult unless to compare. And so can we take some of that introspection and what we learned and insights in that little container and pull it forward into our workday, into our work? And the challenge for management, you know, for the leaders that you coach, for the companies that you support is to humanize the uh, corporation as an entity. Right. That, it, you know, they say, I don't know, I think it was the president that said or someone said that hey, corporations are, are, are people, too. Well, no, they're not. Corporations are corporations. But you, we do need to humanize the corporation. Absolutely. And in humanizing it, what I'm suggesting in my book and we suggest and work with our clients around is reframing the relationship that you have with your employer. So the employer employee relationship is a social contract based on social exchange theory. It's give and take. Yeah. It's just like you with your girlfriends or your partner. It's give and take. You contribute to that relationship and you receive. If you reframe it that way, it is more human. And it means as an employee, I have an equal and powerful voice to ask for what I need. Yes. Ed, which which empowers us. It gives us some sense of control when we feel like the external world is out of control. Yes. And you suggest in, in, in your book, Own It, Love It, Make It Work, how to make any job your dream job. You know, I want to ask you, what if we find ourselves in a company doing work that the work itself may be okay, but the corporate ethos may not and how do we make it work and how do we use that experience as a launching pad to maybe grow a little courage and move on? So the first thing is you want to look at where there is that disconnect between the company and you and your values. And then we want to get clear on what is the company ethos? What is the right ethos for you? Because I'm always concerned when my clients leave a job for another job without this clarity. Mm. Because wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> that is how it works, darn. It is, I know. I'm like, oh, what back in this again? I'm like, oh, your piece of the action is you didn't get clear on the type of recognition and appreciation you need, what your strengths are and how they add value, your career development, what that looks like, the type of relationship you want with your team, your managers, the organization, the community, and you didn't get clear on the purpose and meaning in your work. And so if that doesn't happen and you choose to leave, you're setting yourself up for the same type of disappointment and disillusionment. Without the clarity, without the, the, the structure of a roadmap of where you want to go, that the next time you will pick a company that has X, Y, and Z as its mission, as its values, as the way it treats and engages with, it, with, with its workforce. Exactly. We can do a lot of background checking. We absolutely can. We have so much information oh, at yeah. our fingertips, which is <laughs> wonderful. So, yeah, From you home. have your 
take time on Google, but, you know, also check other sites. I mean, there are some great sites. I think Munster.com has got good feedback on it. Oftentimes, the social media accounts talk to folks that work there and ask deeper questions. Move beyond the surface of benefits and compensation and the type of work to really dig into the culture. Yeah. While you're being motivatingly interviewed for a potential position as the potential employee, we can be and should be doing the same to the company. Absolutely. So if this is a relationship, if, you, if you'll if you go with that paradigm shift, shift that this is a social contract, when you are meeting a potential new friend or you're going on a date, you're trying to get to know them the same way they're trying to get to know you. Yeah. Why would you not engage in that level of exploration that you do in your personal life? We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with my guest, Carson Tate, about her book, Own It, Love It, Make It Work, How to Make Any Job Your Dream Job. We're talking about the heart and soul of how and why we work. To connect with Carson, please do so at CarsonTate.com, on Facebook, Carson Tate, and on Instagram at the Carson Tate. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Continuing the conversation with my guest, Carson Tate, we're talking about blooming where we are rooted, what neuroscience can teach us about harnessing passion and productivity. Let's get back to it. Carson, let's talk about approaching our work as a canvas and a piece of art, because you write about this in your book and, and the notion of being creative, even though we might be creatively challenged. You know, not all of us is a painter or an artist, but the work that we do is artistic expression. Absolutely. All of us are creators. All of us solve problems for people. All of us support products and help products come to market. And so all of us have this creative edge. We don't always think about it that way. Thank you for your graciousness. I am ready. We have, I think I have threatened within a inch of their life, the background noise to go away for few more minutes. That's okay. That's okay. And so we'll come, we'll come back and we will talk about that sort of that work-life blur, because I think this is really another important angle is, you know, is. The, 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 the pleasures and the challenges of this new world of work is, you know, like from the top up, we're in business attire and the bottom down, we're in sweats and clogs or flip-flops and, you know, withholding a kid at bay with one arm, you know, 
Yes. Yes. To all of that. I don't know that my feet are ever going to really go back in my pretty shoes again. Lisa, I've been barefoot for months and loving it. Yeah. Well, I have a very funny story about that. I have had plantar fasciitis for the first time in my life. And so I had this twisted logic that, okay, maybe if I put on my four inch heels, it would stretch my feet out back to the way that they used to be and that I would feel better. So I did and it worked. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And there's going to be, you're going to let all the orthopedic surgeons, you know, the foot and ankle guys know this is how we solve for plantar fasciitis as a female. This is what we do. We put our beautiful heels on and walk around our house. In our sweats. In our sweats, it looks great. It, you know, it our legs look, look great. great in those sweats. Yeah, and, and and my honey, he loves it. He's like, oh, I haven't seen those in a in a while. I'm like, of yeah, course he does. <laughs> He's like, ooh. <laughs> but this is all part of it. I think this is the 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 juicy discovery of the gifts of what has happened to us. And again, not minimizing these challenges that the world is going through. You know, it's it's hard. This is hard stuff, but. I'm hearing more positives than negatives from everybody I come in contact with. I am as well. And the other thing that has become very clear to me is I'm also excited for, I have a nine-year-old daughter. I'm excited that she is getting the opportunity to see my work. Yeah. Modeling work for her in a very intentional way has been, I think, a silver lining. But because for this, she never saw me work. I was always on the road. But now she sees me on a podcast. She sees me teaching. She sees me writing. Really interesting. And I think it's expanded her perspective of what work is and can be. And how that translates to modeling parenting skills, right? The way she now has had to go online you know, maybe she's back in, you know, in building school now, not online, but to sort of discipline herself and learn to to build that into her workday. Absolutely. I've been very impressed with her ability to manage and stay focused. And she's understanding breaks. And I'm thinking to myself, these are life skills. Now, if I could just get some of my clients to take a few more breaks, their productivity, effectiveness, and happiness would go up because she does it almost naturally. She'll engage in a task and then she'll go off and color or do something and come back. It's a very natural way. And that's actually a way I think we're designed to work. Well, we're not designed to work, to sit and work for several hours straight. I mean, we, we concentration strays, sort of the understanding of what we're doing uh, diminishes as time goes on. So I think the, what is the rule of thumb anywhere between 45 minutes to 90 minutes and then we need a pause. Absolutely. And one thing that we have been teaching our clients, Lisa, around this for years to kind of operationalize this break is for our folks that are more planners is we encourage them to actually put it on their calendar. So this is for the calendar people. Just put a little reminder, five minute stretch break, five minute break. And it's a break. It's not checking your email. It's doing something that <laughs> lets your brain relax. So for me, it's all of my funny, you know, magazines that I love to just flip through. It's a brain break. Yeah. And that brain redirection actually builds the connectivity. So when we return to the work, we return with renewed um, eyes and concentration. 
Absolutely. And I don't know if you've had this. We were talking about work as our canvas. One thing as a writer, and I know you're a writer as well, I find that when I get stuck or that can't figure out how I'm going to connect an idea or it's just the words are clunky, if I walk, even if it's just around my office in a little tiny circle and come back to it, it's easier. There's like, oh, the problem kind of worked itself out is I was doing something else. I'm the same way. I actually do go out for a walk. When I get stuck, I, I go and physically move because the, the problems will work themselves out. And, and, and I believe what is happening, and I'm not a, a neuroscientist, is that we're getting both sides of the brain activated. I believe you are correct. And we're allowing our brains to, to have that a little bit of a break so it can do its job. It can connect and just swirl around in there right and left and come up with that brilliant sentence or that brilliant insight. Yeah, we are almost out of time. And I want to just I want to circle back to something that we touched upon about if we're in a position that we might not be necessarily happy in, how can we reframe the approach to our work so we feel as though even though we might not be at the company that we like or in the position that we love, that we can um, do the work with a renewed spirit and attention and intention and help move ourselves to the next place. Cause a lot of people will discover that the companies that they've been working for might not necessarily be aligned with this new state that they find themselves in. They might not be. And the reality is they're in this job right now. Exactly. So in this job, so I'll answer your question with a quick story. So, so I had that manager we've all had, you know, the, the jerk and my job was cold calls. Oh. Cold calls all day long. Oh. So micromanager, jerk boss, and work that pretty transactional, pretty awful. Well, I dreaded going to work. I couldn't stand it. And I'd finally reached my tipping point. So I called my coach from college. It's like, I don't know what to do. This is miserable. I can't live this way. However, I have to pay my bills. And my bar tab, I was a little bit younger. And my coach helped me <laughs> reframe. And he said, I ran cross country and track. And he said, Hey, Carson, you know, when you're on the race course and you don't want to finish uphill, what do you do about it? You can't change the course, but you can change your mindset. Yeah. He said, So how might you look at your job differently? What can you look at? What frame can you look at it through? So two things that I did, Lisa. One, I decided this was the hardest type of sales I believe that's out there. If I could master this, this would be a lifelong skill. So who in the company was really good at sales? I went to him. I said, I want to develop this skill. I want to use this time as an opportunity to grow and develop. Can I listen in on your calls? Can I sit in on meetings? Will you provide some coaching and feedback? Wow. So I used it as a developmental opportunity and reframing this icky job, yuck boss as, you know what? This is your time. This is your developmental time was the first powerful step. And it made a huge difference because I went to work and it was a place to learn. The second thing I did is I had to get really clear on my purpose. And so I started looking at our client base that we served. I sold booth space for conferences. And when I realized my market segment was predominantly female first-time entrepreneurs. Uh. 
that's a group I can get behind. Yeah. I hear you. <laughs> I mean, I was, and I realized my work was enabling them to start their company, be in front of a group, a very targeted group of potential customers. And these were entrepreneurs that didn't have the funds for storefronts or maybe traditional marketing. I was helping them grow a business. Those two going to work to learn and support women in growing their business completely changed that job. I would imagine so. Wow. And that's a, that's a very good uh, tip, I think, for our listeners to reframe and sort of hone in on personal growth and then learning this new skill, because ultimately that thing that we are adverse to doing is probably that thing we need to learn how to do. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. I needed those skills. Absolutely. Carson Tate, we need to hang out more. You and I are going to have some virtual uh, virtual meetup. But to learn more about the work of the great Carson Tate, please visit CarsonTate.com. You can connect with her on Facebook at Carson Tate and on Instagram, The Carson Tate. The book we're speaking of is Own It, Love It, Make It Work, How to Make Any Job Your Dream Job. Carson, thanks a million. Lisa, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Lisa Feldman Barrett, PhD, and Carson Tate, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.